1: Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the September 15th edition of I Am Are You? The
2: nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine.
3: Out front and out loud since 1974, I'm chris Ann Eastwood.
1: I'm John Dyer the V. And I'm Steve Pride. Tonight I'll talk to the documentarian Stephen Silla. About Big Joy, the adventures of James Broughton.
3: And I'm going to have a chat with out-NBA player Jason Collins.
1: I think several straight people around the station just perked up suddenly and they're listening now.
3: That's right. It's going to be more sports, sports, sports. Yay.
2: The sapphic nomads return with part three of their four-part report on LGBT India.
3: And our good pal Dixie Treichel from KFAI in Minneapolis, St. Paul, shares an interview with lesbian rocker Beverly McClellan.
1: Ooh, this one's hot. Mm-hmm.
2: Come on. And we'll encore a story on our own Stephen Raines and his My Life is Poetry workshop to celebrate his appointment as the first Poet Laureate of West Hollywood. But
1: first, the national and international news from our good friends at This Way Out.
0: I'm Michael Lebeau.
4: And I'm Kristen Million.
0: With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending September 13, 2014. Lawmakers in Gambia have passed legislation that's reportedly almost identical to Uganda's infamous anti-homosexuality law, which was overturned on a legal technicality earlier this year, but is being reintroduced in Parliament. Gambia's version also enhances existing penalties for gay sex and punishes such private, consensual adult same-gender acts with up to life in prison for repeat offenders, what the measure describes as aggravated homosexuality. The same fate awaits people with HIV and those charged with having sex with someone who's disabled, drugged, or under the age of 18. Homosexual acts in the West African country are already punishable by up to 14 years behind bars. The new measure awaits the signature of Gambian president Yaya Jamey, who called gay people vermin earlier this year, suggesting that they should be eradicated, just like malaria-carrying mosquitoes. He previously told the United Nations that same-gender attraction is one of the three biggest threats to human existence. In 2008, Jamey ordered LGBT Gambians to leave the country or face beheading.
4: Seven men were arrested in Cairo this week for participating in a viral video that said to show Egypt's first gay wedding ceremony. According to several local news reports, the men were charged with incitement to debauchery, a vague offense frequently used against gay men, and publishing indecent images. The state news agency said that police were still looking for two more men involved in the incident. The statement described the video, which appeared online, as showing a devilish, shameless party, where two of the men were getting married. The prosecutor said the video dates back to April. But in an unexpected twist, doctors who reportedly examined the men declared that they all tested negative for homosexuality. While specifics of those examinations were not described, they're thought to have included rectal probes, intended to determine if the men had engaged in anal sex with other men. Human rights groups around the world have condemned such procedures as scientifically useless at best and dehumanizing torture at worst. Because of those negative results, however, prosecutors might have to drop the charges against the men. According to the Washington Post, one of the men, who didn't give his name but claimed to be one of the detainees, told an Egyptian call-in radio show that it was all a misunderstanding and that the video simply showed a birthday party where a ring had been offered to the man as a joke. Even though same-gender sex is technically not illegal in the Muslim-dominated country, gay men have been routinely detained there under debauchery charges for the past several years. Perhaps the most infamous examples were the arrests in 2001 of more than 50 men in a raid on a Nile Riverboat night spot who were accused of participating in a gay sex party.
0: The Australian Football League, or AFL, is said to be reassessing a sponsorship deal with Royal Brunei Airlines because of Brunei's pending new laws that call for gay people to be stoned to death. The Sultan of Brunei, Hassanal Bolkiah, gave approval in April to a revised penal code scheduled to take effect next year that calls for that form of execution for consensual adult same-gender sexual activity. Bolkiah's family has ruled the tiny Southeast Asian country for more than 600 years. The state-owned airline is part of the Sultan's estimated $13 billion fortune. Several luxury hotels he owns in the U.S. and Europe have been the targets of boycotts since the draconian new laws were announced. AFL officials told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation this week that they were unaware of the harsh anti-gay laws when what they called the organization's biggest ever sponsorship deal was signed with Royal Brunei Airlines in July. The revelation is an embarrassment for the Australian Football League, which signed on to a nationwide anti-homophobia in sports campaign earlier this year, and just last week went on record in support of marriage equality.
4: All eyes will be on the U.S. Supreme Court on September 29th. That's when justices will meet behind closed doors to review appeals of marriage equality rulings from Indiana, Oklahoma, Virginia, Wisconsin, and Utah. Three different federal appeals courts have ruled that bans on civil marriage for same-gender couples in each of those states are unconstitutional. The justices could decide to hear one or more of the cases in their next term, set to begin in October, or they could put off making a decision for a while. The high court is not obligated to hear any appeal, but pressure has been mounting on the justices to address the contentious issue. Top legal officials in more than half of the United States and virtually every plaintiff couple involved in the marriage equality cases challenging bans in those five states have called on the Supreme Court to resolve the question sooner rather than later. Several religious denominations, led by the Mormon Church, also asked the justices this week to settle the issue once and for all. Marriage equality cases are currently before three other federal appeals courts. A ruling is pending from the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which heard arguments last month in cases from Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee. The 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals heard a challenge this week to the civil marriage ban in Texas.
0: A three-judge panel of the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals heard challenges on September 8th to civil marriage bans in Idaho and Nevada and was asked to dismiss a case in Hawaii because the state subsequently enacted marriage equality legislatively. Equality activists predict that the liberal three-judge Ninth Circuit panel will rule in favor of opening the institution to gay and lesbian couples. Kate Kendall is the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which represented the same gender couple plaintiffs in the Idaho case. She sat through the lengthy Ninth Circuit hearings and commented on what she heard.
3: I think the arguments made by those opposed to same-sex marriage, and this is what we heard for an, almost an hour and a half, that if gay couples, if same-sex couples are allowed to marry, that will send the message to heterosexuals, particularly heterosexual men. So this is the sort of men or pigs argument, and it's offensive to all heterosexual men, that if same-sex couples can marry, that will so devalue the institution of marriage that heterosexual men will flee their families in droves and will not provide the proper nurturing and parenting to their children. It's an absurd argument. It's not only offensive to men, but there's no connection between same-sex couples marrying and what happens with heterosexual couples. And I think, fortunately, we're coming to the end of standing around, sitting around in a courtroom, having to listen to these inane arguments in support of what is just simply rank discrimination.
0: That was Kate Kendall of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. It's unclear when the Ninth Circuit ruling will be announced, but it could be soon. That's News Wrap for the week ending September 13th, 2014. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community.
4: News Wrap was produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles.
0: News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you.
4: Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Kristen Million.
0: And I'm Michael LeBeau.
1: You can hear all 30 minutes of the latest This Way Out, including more news rap on Stitcher on Demand or iTunes or even at thiswayout.org. It's everywhere.
2: Hmm. You can't get away from it. Also on the program this week, New York City St. Patrick's Day Parade organizers greenwash bias. And John Lithgow and Albert Molina star as a married gay couple forced to live apart in the
3: new film Love is Strange. I can't wait to see that movie. Looks good. Directed by Ira Sachs, who well, does you great know, Brad Pitt and now. I are
1: forced to live apart as well. I but know. You're no doing, one's doing a movie on that. You're
3: doing so well with it, I really think. You know, even though he's married Angelina, he finally married her. Oh,
1: well, yeah, he doesn't even look in my direction of events, just <sighs> not to give it away. Yeah,
3: no, but just, just keep on keeping on.
1: Well, speaking of superstars.
3: Yeah, speaking of superstars and, of course, present company except No, of course. Um, I had a chance to uh, sit down with a good friend, uh, well, a good friend of the sports world, the only out NBA player who is currently playing right now. I ran up with him at the Terrific Outfest, and here is my chat with Jason Collins.
5: I'm Jason Collins and I'm an NBA professional basketball player.
3: Now, you came out last year and it's been great as, as far as you say. I was expecting somebody else to come out. Cause your experience has been terrific I, yes, as far as, yes. as, as all we know. Yes, yes. So I thought there'd be yes. more.
5: Um, it goes back to everybody has to live their own path. The only thing I can do is show people that it's okay. You're the, sort of the canary going in the mine shaft and showing everybody it's okay to you know, live your life and you can have your life off the court and you can still be a professional athlete. And, um, yeah, the media attention will come. It's one of those things that goes back to more and more people need to take that brave step so that one day when a professional athlete does come out, it's okay. And, you know, can you help us win ballgames?
3: We've talked about you being a mentor to, you know, nameless folks who are thinking about it. But Mm -hmm. active players, teammates, opposition, Mm -hmm. your guys, guys from Stanford, Harvard, Westlake, wherever, the, the straight guys are they asking you questions? Are they, are yeah. they looking for education? <laughs>
5: yeah, some of them are. I've actually had a, a funny conversation with Robbie Rogers about this, about uh, some of the funny questions that uh, some of our teammates will ask us, and it, um, it's cool that you know some people. It's just uh, if you're not exposed to something, it's like you just don't know, and then you just. But to see them just ask questions about you know what it's like to be gay, or because some of their family members might be, and they just don't know how to talk, and it's just like. It's just more and more direct communication and more and more exposure to help change people's minds or continue to create an environment of inclusion.
3: Were there any times in your career before you came out where there was something that if you were had a wife or dating woman, you could talk to people about and you, just, you came with such such a huge secret on top of it? Very no,
5: no, nothing along those lines because, again, I didn't go out on my first date or <laughs> until after uh, the Sports illustration article, but I will say that there was a, the hardest part of um, being quiet was when I played for the Washington Wizards, and, and, and you know, I was playing in and living in Washington, D.C. in March of 2013 when the Supreme Court cases were being argued, and here I was a professional athlete playing for the hometown team, and I was in the closet and quiet while the Supreme Court, and I lived less than three miles from the Supreme Court and here are these two monumental cases being argued that have a direct impact on my life, on my happiness. And I was quiet. And uh, it was a lot of discussions with my friends and family, uh, those people at the time who were the only ones who knew my secret. But I'm so grateful and so thankful to the attorneys, to the plaintiffs, to all the people who supported them in every single facet, really, you know, financial, emotional, whatever support you gave, and also the straight allies and having... A other professional athletes like Brendan Ayamadejo or Chris Cluey write amicus briefs, and just so proud and so thankful for them that they were vocal. And now that I have this platform, it's a responsibility, but it's also, um, you know, I just enjoy talking and <laughs> I enjoy speaking up and speaking out because I was quiet for so long.
3: Well, the biggest areas for homophobia for most of us, especially for young guy athletes, is high school. Yeah. And so, what would you say to high school kids today, especially high school boy athletes? about any homophobia or any kind of stuff they have going on.
5: To the straight kid, I would say none of my teammates, none of my coaches, none of my owners, no one had a problem with having a gay teammate. These are Hall of Famers. These are professional athletes. So, who are you <laughs> to have an issue? If you want to get here to the pros, this is how you're going to have to conduct yourself. This is how you're going to have to support your teammate. And this is going to be the future. You can get with this or find Just something else. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So,
3: get on the bench.
5: Um, so, that's what I would say to the straight high school kid and also to the straight kid who is an ally continue to be an ally. Continue that if you see something that wrong continue to be vocal because sometimes that lgbt kid isn't quite yet ready to be the loudest one in the room and maybe is still working things out but as a straight ally if you see something wrong or hear language being used that's inappropriate speak up and speak out on it uh, to the lgbt kid i say know that there is a community that's waiting to support you and love you and accept you for who you are and with regards to your sport it doesn't matter. Race, sport is the ultimate equalizer with regards to it. doesn't matter your religion, your sexual orientation, your race, your re- whatever. It's how hard do you work at your sport? How much time do you devote to being the best that you can possibly be? Because that's all that coaches really care about is are you a good teammate or do you have the talent to
3: help our team win? Thank you so, so very much. It's a real honor to meet you. Thank you Thanks so much. And that was a huge honor just to talk with out NBA player Jason Collins, who is currently not with a team. He just finished a one-year contract with the Brooklyn Nets. And he is on the fence whether he is going to return for a 14th season. That's a long time in this. And he's a 7-footer. And, you know, it's tough when you're that tall. You take a lot of beating. So take were you just standing
1: up for the interview?
3: You know what? Here's the, here's how I did this interview. I was standing up, and I had a microphone and a wire, but the wire was, was shorting out. So I literally had to take my... I had to detach it, take the recorder, and I stood with my arm all the way up, Statue of Liberty style, and I stood that way for about, you know, probably got 15 minutes worth. And oh and uh, I looked like I was hailing a cab, or lighting a torch, or just, you know, showing that I just had a question for the teacher. But it was a great, he's a really, really great guy, and I hope he has a great future in sports, and, um, you know, and but it'll be sad if he doesn't play again, that means there is no out player in the NBA, so... Hey, NBA uh, players, there's a slot open.
1: Yeah, go Jason Collins. Yeah. Go. Well, now, this little segue is a little little awkward because we're going from the NBA to India. For the third part of a four-part report about gay life in India from our sapphic nomads, Katie Cook and Maggie Young.
6: In this third installment from our four-part series from India, we talked to Deepak Kashyap, a psychologist and couples therapist living and working in Mumbai, India. Curious about gender dynamics within India, we asked Deepak about his thoughts on gender politics between men and women within the queer movement.
7: The gender politics, at at the polity level, I think we, on papers, we are required to see them as equals. Now, laws don't change cultures. Cultures can change laws. But if you force a law on an existing culture, it will take a long time before it changes. For example, first we changed the culture. We had been fighting for the whole gay rights thing from, I think the first time we applied to the government was sometimes in the 90s. But then we started changing the culture bit by year, by year, by year. And first we held a gay pride parade. We became visible. Here we are, we are fighting for our rights. When you when you're not visible, whose right are you talking about? Right. So you first become visible, then the law takes notice of it and changes. That's an organic way of going about it. So on on papers, we are required to be same towards women and men, and you know the whole idea of gay rights. The gay word has to include um, women, but because not a lot of gay men make room for women, um, you require a different terminology thereby uh, is subsuming gay as a label in a larger queer uh, concept, Um, the concept of being queer. So the politics around it is such that, now you look at it this way, two vulnerable groups already, okay, They, they interact with each other and they suddenly don't find too much in common, surprisingly. But morally and politically you cannot have unequals in a free country. Now this is an ideal which, which comes from the Age of Enlightenment in England. When people say, oh this is all gay rights and everything is Western concept, I, I, I kind of agree that this whole thing is Western import because the idea of giving equal rights to people, not homosexuality is not a Western import, of course, it's a human condition. The whole gay rights thing is a Western import because we don't have a culture of giving equal rights to people. <sighs> you are an untouchable. Oh, I am—I'm a, I'm a you are the Shudras, and I am the Rajput, and I am the Brahmin, and I'm, I'm the Pan. So we, we've always had an acceptance for inequality. So this whole egalitarian idea of enlightenment age is coming to India. Like no, no, wait, wait, no, no equal rights. Why are you doing? What is equal? So India's definition of equal is some people are more equal than others. And then women get like the second layer. Women are not as equal as men. So this this entire idea of equality is a Western import, and I would rather I import this i'd rather that we use this as a foil because it uh, also see india is the only country in the world where you'll see social power economic power and political power being at three different junctures you could be economically powerful but nothing socially if you are not of a good caste a brahmin a poor brahmin can look at you and say you're not a brahmin So it's the only country where social importance, economic importance, and political power can be at three different areas.
6: We then asked Deepak about his work as a couples therapist.
7: The same
6: problem is
7: anywhere. A relationship is a relationship is a relationship. It just comes with different genitals, trust me. It's the same seven to eight problems that go on in a couple's life demand for reciprocity um, fairness you're not being fair to me i'm not visible you don't listen to me do i matter to you um, am, am am i of any significance in your in your future where is my place it's the same thing that we've been craving from childhood mom do you love me do you look at me it's 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 a beautiful, but a very seductive trap that we make our partners, our parents. This, this whole smuggling in of um, love patterns, patterns in the way we love our parents, in the way we love our lovers. What psychological need do you think the baby talk fulfills? Security. I can trust you, I can be my vulnerable, childish self in front of you and hope that you protect me and love me, and you won't judge me for the worst in me, but you would push yourself to understand the worst in me. Straight and gay couple, it is so beautiful to see that uh, we share the same trials and tribulations and triumphs of humanity.
6: This concludes the third part of our four-part series from India. To learn more about our Sapphic Nomads project, please visit our website at www.nomaddocumentary.com or you can visit our Sapphic Nomads Facebook page. Till next time, this is Maggie Young with fellow Sapphic Nomad Katie Cook reflecting on our time in Mumbai, India for This Way Out.
1: And we'll have part four of that series, the final part, next week.
6: You know, it's
3: interesting. She talked about the fact that gay relationships, lesbian relationships, straight relationships, we all have the capacity to be incredibly codependent. <laughs> so we can all be... We well, that's something all be, to look
1: forward to. Well, it's
3: true. We, we all have the same joys and miseries. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just different how you put your pants on. Well,
1: speaking of joy...
3: Yes. Speaking of joy, um, a defining voice of the sexual revolution, whose groundbreaking artistic celebrations of sexuality influenced many in the 60s many, and 70s. Too. Many.
1: If were alive then, yeah. But,
3: but, yes. he isn't as well known as he should be, and a brand new documentary hopes to change that.
1: In Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman said, Do anything, but let it produce joy. And the late pansexual poet and filmmaker, James Broughton, embraced this ethic completely. And his jubilant 85-year journey is celebrated in the award-winning documentary, Big Joy, The Adventures of James
8: Broughton.
0: Comrades,
8: come forth. Hurdle the taboos. Joy will be the wonder. Love the
9: surprise. My name is Stephen Silla, and I'm the co-producer and co-director of Big Joy, The Adventures of James Broughton. James Broughton was a wild and crazy poet, filmmaker, and a person who followed his own weird. He was a pre-beat poet in San Francisco. He was writing beat-type poetry ten years before Allen Ginsberg read Howl, and he made his first experimental film in 1946, made 23 films throughout his career, wrote 23 books of poetry, and had a life that kind of traversed the Depression, the McCarthy years, the San Francisco Renaissance, the hippie years. It was quite an amazing life.
1: What sparked your interest in this man?
9: Well, I met Broughton at a radical fairy gathering in 1989. We were assigned to the same cabin, he and his partner Joel, And we ended up talking, becoming friends. They invited me over for one of Joel's famous dinners. And James was at that time writing his memoir, which took him about 10 years to write. And he said, I hate prose. It's so prosaic. And I jokingly said, well, you know, if you teach me about poetry, I'll help you with prose. And it turned out that we became kind of mentors. And he particularly mentored me in not just poetry, but life. He once said it's more important to live poetically than to be a good poet, and he did that. And I was so taken when I met him with how lively he was, how he was surrounded by beautiful young men at age 75, and just how engaged and witty he was. His sense of humor was incredible.
1: How influential has that friendship been on your life?
9: It was huge. After we realized that we had a resonance. I live about two hours away from Port Townsend, where he and Joel moved in 1989. And I would visit them frequently. They would come to my house. We would get together in Seattle. And James really gave me permission to be myself, to follow my weird, to do the things that I most wanted to do but didn't know I could. He loved the English language. And when he said, follow your weird, he wasn't saying, be as odd as you can be. He was saying, be as true to your core, because weird comes from a Celtic root that means fate or destiny. So for me, it meant simultaneously being as true to my core and on my creative edge as possible. So he really loosened me up, and making this film was a real adventure, because I had originally thought I would probably write a book, since that was my background. But when I started looking at his films and went to Kent State University and looked at his archive, which included his journals from age 13 until he died, and his incredible body of not just film, but poetry, he wrote some unpublished novels, he wrote 13 plays, he was just this amazing creative force. And I thought the only way to really communicate this is by film.
1: You met him when he was an out-and-proud radical fairy and a sister of perpetual indulgence. But James Broughton had an evolving sexuality.
9: Yeah, I think if you look at his journals, he started writing about his gay feelings when he was 13 and had some early experiences with men, which he was very ashamed of. But his stepfather and mother sent him to a military school when he was 10 to make a man of him and he actually discovered the joy of men's bodies in military school. This was in the 20s and 30s. So he went to Stanford and had an affair with Harry Hay, but he was quite bisexual in those years and their affair was very short-lived. He also had an affair with Hart Crane's lover (laughs) when he was in the Merchant Marine. And he had definitely relations with men and women. Of course, in the 40s, he had a child with Pauline Kale, which is one of the parts of his story that's a huge surprise to a lot of people. Then in the 50s, he was openly gay in a relationship with Kermit Sheets. But at that time, nobody talked about being gay. In the 60s, after years of Jungian therapy, he was convinced by his therapist and his friend Stan Brackage, the experimental filmmaker, to marry a woman, Susanna Hart, who we were fortunate to be able to interview for our film. So they were married from 1962 until he met Joel in 1975. And they had two children. And then after he met Joel, he became this, all of a sudden, all this gay stuff that before was very kind of homoerotically suppressed in his writing Uh, and his film became just out there, totally out there. And he became kind of a bard of gay liberation, as Armistead Maupin says in our film. Back in the 70s, when
1: I knew him, James was one of the major poetic voices of gay liberation. And he did it uh, by talking about ecstasy and joy, and people responded to it for
8: that reason. Listen, brothers, listen. The alarms are on fire. The oracles are strangled. Hear the pious vultures condemning your existence. Hear the greedy warheads calling for your death. Quick while there's time, take heed, take heart. Outnumber the hawks, outdistance the angels.
1: Love one another or die. Do you see him as gay or bisexual?
9: I see him as more gay, but he's definitely in the Kinsey scale, you know, somewhere in the middle of the middle and gay. (laughs) But I see him, based on his journals, as gay. He wrote early on about this fantasy of a men's culture where men are just like a tribe of lovers. And I think when he encountered the Radical Fairies, that was a manifestation of his dream. And so he totally was on fire with the excitement of being able to write about his deep gay yearnings.
1: This has been a conversation with Stephen Silla, the producer and co-director of Big Joy, The Adventures of James Broughton. Find more information online at bigjoy.org. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
8: I may be infecting the whole body, said the head,
0: but they'll never amputate me.
2: A real gay renaissance man.
1: Yeah. I had actually never heard of him before the movie, and he was just everywhere and every, did everything. I mean, he's, 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 yeah. he's
3: rubbed up against, no pun intended, yeah. some famous folks in our history.
1: Maybe he's married to Pauline Kale. Kale. Kale and the, child the, with her. The, the great Trump, famous yeah. uh,
3: film critic. And, and if uh,
1: you're someone who's into instant gratification,
3: well, I can't speak Big for me. Big Joy
1: is currently available to stream on iTunes or on Netflix. Also, the website BigJoy.org has a ton of information about James Broughton, as well as links to many of his films, which are on YouTube.
3: YouTube, which I think is a great learning. It's like the library of the world. It is.
1: YouTube. That's and on the interweb, you know.
3: It is on the interweb, and you can inter-Google it to get all your inter-information. And don't
2: we have a YouTube channel ourselves? We do. I am a radio. Amen. Still to come, remember that big, bald lesbian that rocked it on the first season of The Voice? Mm-hmm. Her name is Beverly... McKellen, And we'll have the 411 with her after the break.
3: Plus an encore of our story on our own Stephen Raines and his seniors in My Life is Poetry.
1: The time is now 734. Wow. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
10: On this day in history, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. September 15th, 1969, the biweekly newspaper Gay Power publishes its premiere issue. Billed as New York's first homosexual newspaper, gay power hit the newsstands just a month after the infamous riots at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. Edited by drag performer John Hayes until July 1970 and published by Joel Fabricant, the first issue sold for 35 cents in New York City and 75 cents out of town. Containing excellent articles and poems, the 24-page Gay Power also sported a psychedelic cover, numerous illustrations and photographs, astrological advice, and first-hand accounts of groundbreaking gay activism. About six weeks later, two more newspapers hit the scene, one called Come Out by the Gay Liberation Front and the other called Gay. Gay Power lasted about a year. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios of WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Tom Miller. Hello, I'm Billy Bean, Major League Baseball's ambassador for inclusion, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest and China Lake, 93.7 San Diego or streaming online at kpfk.org.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to I'm Radio Radio. I am Steve Pride,
3: And I'm Chris-Ann Guitar Eastwood.
2: <laughs> and I'm John Dyer V.
1: That song coming out of the break was I Can't Hide Me from Beverly McKellen. Ooh. Recently, our pal Dixie Trishel in Minneapolis-St. Paul got the scoop, the skinny, and the 411 from this powerful rocker. What a voice,
11: and tell us about yourself. I'm a hillbilly that likes to sing, and I got a chance to do that on a national television show, and I'm continuing on the legacy that Etta James inspired me to do, you know, along with Janis Joplin and other people, and Dolly Parton, even. I like music. I like to sing. I like to make it. Blues is where my heart is. Blues and rock. Blues rock, I'd say.
12: Do you have a preference for playing acoustic as opposed to electric? That's where it started for me. I mean, I didn't have
11: an electric at first. I had an acoustic. So I just stayed acoustic. Me and my guitar, we're all we're all right. We have a relationship. But me and that piano got one, too. You know, it's different with every instrument. But I'd say that the two that I love the most, obviously, is piano and, and guitar.
12: I can't hide I can't you. hide me. And yeah. I don't want to all anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's from Fear Nothing. Now, that's mm-hmm. your most recent CD. Anything
11: that you're listening to on that CD, I've lived because I write stuff that directly links to my life
12: how do you go about writing your songs for me it's all
11: emotion it's got to be something that i feel compelled to write about and you know love is definitely one of those things and being a powerful woman you know like the women i grew up around like you know pat benatar hart joan Mm -hmm. jett cindy Lauper, like in the 80s when i grew up when they actually played music on you know mtv That was the day when I grew up when music was actually being played on there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just wanted to be that since I was five years old. That's Mm -hmm. all I know. I just wanted to sing, just wanted to do that. And that was some girl in a podunk town of 3,000 people. Still, to this day, with one stoplight. You can make it no matter where you come from. Nobody needs to tell you you're a winner or a loser. You just need to feel the winner inside. And I was born in Kingsport, Tennessee, because Gate City, Virginia, ain't got no hospital. How about that? We had a party line, if you know what I'm talking about, the phone <laughs> yeah. up on the mountain where, you know, hey, oh, sorry, you're on the phone. Cool. It would be off for 10 minutes. Yeah, we, we had a, five people sharing the same phone line. Yeah, that's country.
12: That is
11: indeed. That's where I'm from. So I'm bringing the blues out of that.
12: When you started singing, did you start out as a blues singer or were you just singing songs? No, I started out
11: singing Dolly Parton songs, Johnny Cash, and a ton of gospel because my mom was a piano player at church. Dad was a pastor. So I grew up in church, you know, singing, singing, singing.
12: You were singing what in Florida for years and years, and then you got this break to yeah, go on the voice. one
11: a feller in my band that I work with every once in a while asked me to. Uh give this uh, email that he sent me a look at there was a new singing show coming out and i was like yeah 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 i ain't gonna <laughs> do that it's gonna be another american idol blah 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 you know <laughs> mm-hmm. you know i just didn't want to be made fun of but the voice is really a a platform for artists like myself and and many others there's no judgment there if anything they help you become what it is you want to be And I'm talking about for like mostly like the 16 year olds, the 17 year olds, the 20 year olds that go there. I was already 41. I was setting my ways and I was, I'm already who I'm going to (laughs) be. You know
12: what I mean? (laughs) Yeah.
11: They just kind of showed me to the world and said, "Go, go, do your thing, girl."
12: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that opened up a new pathway to you in a way. With where you got to work with Cindy Lauper and Johnny, oh, and baby, and King, baby, King, on now. hello, Robert Cray, yeah, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Johnny Lane, Steve Vai world tour. Come on. How do you feel about that? All of a sudden, you're in a totally different land.
11: I just kind of go day by day with it. You know, I don't know about that whole fame thing. I don't know, you know, what that is, really. I mean, I'm going to be Beverly no matter who people say I am. Being able to walk through the other door... Rather than being a musician that works five nights a week in my town and then getting on a plane now to go to work. Mm
9: -hmm. This is
11: very different for me, but also it's something that now I just know I'm supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. Share music, that's a beautiful thing. And my opinion as far as, you know, living out and proud. That's another thing that people find hard to believe. And I'm like, I've never been any other way except for just me.
12: And that's a great thing. It sounds like, you know, you haven't up to this point had any problems with any discrimination or anything like that. Not one. We love hearing that.
11: America voted me in all three times. So they spoke loud and clear when they, you know, made their opinion of me. Wow. Like just internationally loved. It was really weird and good (laughs) all at the same time, you know. And you did
12: perform at the Glad Media Awards. How was that?
11: That was amazing. That was Uh, come on, to be amongst a huge room of family like that and to hear the stories and, you know, how people have come through their hardships. It was was overwhelming.
12: It was great, though. Talk about your ideas for your next CD. I think the new
11: album, there's just so many people that have stepped up front, and I don't want to name names yet, but I will say that this next album is going to be right up there with Fear Nothing. If not,
2: tip it right over the top. Wow. She is all kinds of fun.
3: Yes, she is, and she and, and you know, John, you are from the uh, South, correct? I'm from so Georgia. You're from Georgia, and she is from Georgia as well. Oh,
2: I thought I although yeah, you yeah although know her
3: although she had to get born <laughs> She's in a cousin. there was no, but there's no hospital in her little town. They'd to get born in Tennessee. There's a lot of little towns. Yes, there are. Okay.
1: Well, moving right along, we're going to actually revisit something that's been on the show before from 2008. We covered something called My Life is Poetry Workshop, mm. which was amazing and featured our good friend Stephen Rains. And Stephen Rains has been named the Poet Laureate of West Hollywood. This Coolest week. thing oh. ever. And there's a documentary about My Life is Poetry Workshop that will be playing at the Renberg this Saturday at 2 p.m. And it's, I, I just we will be at we'll Pesina Pride, Breaks, yes. but our hearts will be with Stephen Rains. Yes, so Stephen Rains, let's take a look you. back at how it all began.
10: Hello, my name is Newton Butler,
1: and my life is poetry. We are a society built on storytelling, but we are a minority community obsessed with youth. Nonetheless, on Saturday afternoons for nearly five months, a group of gay and lesbian seniors gathered in Hollywood for an autobiographical poetry workshop. Among many results was the moving anthology, My Life is Poetry, and at the launch party, Even the pros were impressed. Lammy award-winning mystery writer, John Morgan Wilson.
10: I found it very uh, touching and inspiring and fun. I really enjoyed it.
1: In the 1970s, Felice Picano founded one of the first gay publishing houses, and his own books have been translated into 15 languages.
13: I was really moved, and I found it was very interesting how people can get in touch with their feelings so directly through poetry and that anybody can, it seems like anybody can do it. I mean, these were essentially people off the street who are not writers. And I thought that is so marvelous and how poetry, it really is all around us. And um, I hope more people will get in contact with their own poetry.
1: Do we overlook our older voices in the community?
13: We probably do, of course we do. But it wasn't age or seniority that I heard, it was just people. You know, they could have been 18, they could have been 25, they could have been 30. And they were reading poems of things that happened in their own lives, some of which happened many, many years ago. And in at the moment that they were reading it, they were reliving them. So they were 18 and 25 and 44.
14: I'm Stephen Rains, and I created the My Life is Poetry, autobiographical poetry workshop for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans seniors. I'm concerned about the voices that are muted in our society, And I think the voice of elders do not receive the honor and recognition that they deserve, and especially gay, lesbian, bisexual, and trans seniors. I think their voices are almost unheard. And I wanted to create a platform for their life experiences to be shared. And that's what this project was about, and that's what the culmination of the project, which is the book, My Life is Poetry, really is. It's a platform for people to share their stories.
15: My name is Rana. This poem is called Four Tangerines. She'd stride that tree, sure-footed girl-boy, pulling until flesh released stem from tree, and climb back down, full-cupped hands filled with fruit. One by one she sectioned tangerines upon white sheets of Belgian lace. In bed, when she fed me tangerines with her tongue, enticement lingered along the breast nibbling back at morsels of skin she'd wait as love's fruit dropped into her hands ah to be licked with the juice of tangerines and after make love to quench the thirst
8: my name is norman Coe, and the name of my poem is my right hand my right hand has a nice femininity about it i know my right hand is soft to touch because I buy a lot of hand cream for it. My right hand has fed a lot of disabled people. My right hand at times has injected medicine into someone's sick body in the hospital to treat their disease. My right hand has helped cook and feed the homeless people in downtown Los Angeles. My right hand has bathed a lot of mentally retarded girls. My right hand has driven many developmentally delayed persons to Disneyland, the movies, and the beach. My right hand has registered many students into college. My right hand helps senior citizens on and off the bus. My right hand has held a lot of grievous and lonely hands. My right hand has helped put the home address labels on audio cassettes that are mailed throughout our country to people who are blind. My right hand makes lunch for many individuals living with HIV. Why did you decide to take the class? I heard about it through the senior program at the Gay and Lesbian Center. And I always wanted to write poetry, but I was kind of afraid to express myself because of the way I grew up in Los Angeles. And I came to the class, and I met Stephen and everyone else, and it was a very quiet and empowering environment. And so I continued to go, and I learned a lot. I
15: heard about the class through another fellow classmate. She told me about it. And when I came, I immediately felt welcomed. It was a safe environment where other gay people and lesbian people were writing. And we all had a shared life experience that we could write about. And Stephen is very adept at creating this environment where things are so safe that you can bring up the deepest issues.
8: Hello again. My name is Norman Coe, and the name of the poem that I'm reading is Acceptance. Amy, my co-worker, would tell me who at work did not like me because I'm gay. Amy would tell those staff personnels that it takes all kinds of people to make a world. Amy, my friend that would come and see about me when I didn't show up for work. Amy, my friend who came to my house one night with a surprise birthday cake. Just her and me along with another friend who she brought We sat sitting around my fireplace, enjoying the cake and the respect for each other. Amy, my friend, would go with me to buy Christmas presents for 18 mentally delayed meals at Kmart's in Diamond Bar one evening, and told me to call her auntie in front of all of the other shoppers inside the store, up and down the aisles, and while we were waiting in the checkout line. My friend Amy and I would laugh at the response this provoked from the other shoppers because I was openly gay and black and Amy is white, straight, and Jewish with red hair and 60 years old. The guys really enjoyed their Christmas that year.
15: I'm going to read a poem called Shiny Shoes. You were poor then, you tell me. Pennies fought for bought the heel of bread, a few more sandwich meat. One pair of shoes, one black suit, Split between two, welfare woman arrived at the door. You were always afraid she'd take away home. When your mother's heart gave out, they put her in an asylum, the place for crazy people. In Detroit, they'd put away the poor, like numbered people on bunks in the camps. Kept her there until she almost died, and then let her out. Gave her back to you, broken. From all that, you taught me to keep on. You kids don't know what it's like, you'd say. We didn't want to know or even hear the old stories of how it was. We were young then, born from newer cloth, walked in shinier shoes.
1: Stephen, what did you learn from your students?
14: I was continually surprised by my students. One, they were the most punctual group of individuals I've ever worked with. And I think that part of that is the seriousness and their strong feelings about the class and wanting to make sure that they weren't going to miss a moment of it. But I was continually learning as well. And I feel like in a way it was kind of reciprocal. I really just felt honored to be in the room with people with such rich histories and life experiences and people being so willing to share them and be open and vulnerable and to share that with the class, to write it down on paper, and to kind of work through some of those things. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot about each individual student. I learned a lot about poetry itself, even by teaching it to these students, and it, it really seemed endless.
1: What advice would you give to your younger self?
8: Oh, I would tell myself to um, uh, have more courage, to fight against opposition, to stand up for somebody else that was being oppressed, try to do the right things, you know, and be a good role model.
15: You know, I've always been a social activist as long as I've been an adult. So I came through the Vietnam War, and now even as an educator and a teacher, I'm still an activist. And so I think I would just pass on to younger people that it's important to use both your heart and your mind and your words to fight for what you think is important. And I think that's what poetry has allowed us to do in our own way by putting the words out into the minds and hearts of other people.
14: I also think that when people talk about the lack of interest in our history, one, what I did learn from the students, despite all that I've read and my studies, I learned a lot more about just living in the culture and being in that environment at the time. I really actually don't want to put down younger generations and their interests because I kind of wonder... What opportunities have we given them to learn? Mm. And what have we shown them to care about? And they don't even have access. One thing when trying to recruit seniors for this writing workshop, I realized how few gay, lesbian, and bisexual and transgender seniors I knew. In fact, I didn't know any transgender seniors. And unfortunately, we didn't have anyone who identified as trans in our workshop for that reason. I mean, that's a segment of the population that I don't even have access to. So we are kind of isolated in our own way. What we need to do is build bridges and strengthen our communities. And hopefully this book is going to do that. How do we get more information? The book is available on mylifeispoetry.com. And inside the book, there are portraits by the photographer Jenny Walters and the author Dorothy Allison wrote a preface. And if people want to find out more about my future workshops, they can go to my website, which is StephenRains.com. Stephen with a V, Rains spelled R E I G N S. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
5: The secret of life is enjoying the passing of time. There ain't nothing to it. All you gotta do is. Just do it. Nobody knows how we got to the top of the head.
15: Thank you
1: very much, Stephen Rains. A reminder that was a piece from the opening of My Life is Poetry back in 2008. So the book is long, long sold out. But go to the website for more information about the workshops. Also, a reminder that on Saturday at 2 p.m., the documentary about the workshops will be screening at Edgold Plaza over in Hollywood McCadden. Let's end of a ride. We're done.
2: (laughs) Our thanks to tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkerson. Production assistant Wenzel Jones, media maven Miss Barbecue, coordinating producer Steve Pride, and our Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns.
3: Comments or story suggestions, tweet us or follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio or contact us directly via email at IMRU Radio at imruradio.org. We are simulcast and available on demand at kpfk.org, and we also post to the IMRU Radio Facebook page this cast every Tuesday at
1: noon. Well, times are tough, so we're closing medley called Brother Can You Spare a Dime and Ten Cents a Dance from Brad Hamilton's album Shameless. Good night everybody. Good night. night. Once I built a railroad
16: Made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad, now it's done Brother Can You Spare a Dime Once I built a tower to the sun Brick and rivet and line Once I built a tower, now it's done Brother, can you spare Ten cents a dance That's what they pay me gosh how they weigh me down 10 cents a dance pansies and rough guys tough guys who tear my gown seven to midnight i hear drums loudly the saxophone blow Trumpets are tearing my eardrums Customers crush my toes Sometimes I think I found my hero But it's a queer romance All that you need is a ticket Come on, big boy, 10 cents. Say, don't you remember they called me Al? It was Al all the time. Say.